This week, we're in Atlanta with Falcons owner Arthur Blank. The 2017 NFC Championship team has completely transformed since Blank took over. From a stadium unable to fill seats. The 60% that was there, half of those people were rooting for our team. To the highly publicized conviction of star quarterback Michael Vick, followed by the surprise departure of their head coach. I was watching Coach Petrino uh, up at the University of Arkansas doing the pig suey thing. This is all within a six, eight hour span. Later, Blank reflects on his emotional and unexpected ousting from the Home Depot. What about how it went down bothered you? The whole thing felt, you know, just awful to me. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I mentioned that I wanted to start by talking about cancer. Um, Set the scene and describe what you recall from finding out you had cancer. Because I was in a state of shock. What is prostate cancer? And you know, you hear about it like everything else you hear about, but. What are you thinking at the time when you get the news? It's probably not happening to me. You know, it's like the same old thing. It's probably the wrong patient. It's got to get mixed up. The records are now, you know, but he said, look, it's, it's completely treatable and curable and, and uh, so in the interim, 24 hours, I read the second, it's the second highest cause of death with cancer of men in the United States. So it's, it's serious cancer. Um, but if you catch it early, and particularly if the cancer hasn't spread um, outside the gland, there are a number of options that we can, we can consider. Uh, one of my good friends is Don Garber, who's the commissioner of Major League Soccer. And Don, I know, has been pretty public about it, has had you know, serious prostate cancer and um, had spread and he had been through uh, radiation and chemotherapy and, and uh, uh, hormone therapy and had surgery. He had the whole nine yards. He said, I want you to do me a favor. I said, I, w- I want you to speak to the chief of urology at Mount Sinai, which is a series of five hospitals in New York. But he did my surgery. His name is Ash Tawari, Dr. Tawari. He's a great doctor, a great surgeon, does, does, done, has done more robotic surgery than anybody else in the history of, of the world. So we elected to go up there, long story short, did the surgery. Um, he felt positive that he got all the cancer. Told us the end of the week, it's you know early, but he said they did another PSA and he said it looked 100% clear. What's been the most difficult part of the recovery process? Well, it's just, you know, you, you're dealing with issues uh, of both incontinence and, uh, and erectile function. And so you know, neither one is completely normal. Um, it takes a while to get back, you know, all of your facilities, faculties, the way you would ordinarily uh, uh, f- function. Um, probably, you know, never going to regain qu- quite the uh, sexual prominence I had when I was in my 20s. But, you know, I'm 74 now, so that's okay. But I've already got, you know, six kids, three, three my right. wife has three more, so we have nine between the two of us. And, and you know, I mean, the, the rest has all gotten better. It's all, it's all getting back to normal. And... So it's, you know, um, obviously the most important thing is you're cancer-free. In speaking to those close to you, I mean, everybody obviously said so many nice things uh, about you. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody obviously said so many nice things about you. and gave the list of people that liked well, me. Well, so, but I was, uh, in talking to uh, one of them, I was like, look, give, give me an example of a situation where yeah. Arthur would really get heated. And I was talking to uh, Ron Brill, Home Depot employee yeah. number one, and he said there were times when uh, something would go wrong mm-hmm. where Arthur would get hysterical and yeah. want to fire the person yeah. who m- made the mistake. What were those situations that would take you from, you know, zero to furious? Yeah. 
Well, I think the only thing that would really take me from zero to 10, let's say, if, if someone had done something intentionally against our core values, uh, sometimes people make mistakes in, in judgment. They didn't realize it. They, they, they thinking about this versus this. And we, we would encourage people to make mistakes all the time uh, because by making mistakes, they were learning and, and they were testing the edges of whatever we're involved in. So that part of it was fine. If somebody intentionally was trying to hurt you know, our business, um, our customers, our associates, um, shareholders, uh, suppliers, um, then that, I had very little patience for that. Obviously, if something was doing so something that was, uh, lacked integrity, was unethical, was immoral, you know, we had, we had zero patience for that as well. You've said before, quote, the best executives I've worked with have always had a lot of confidence and a lot of security, but a lot of insecurity at the same time. Explain yeah. what you mean by that. Well, you know, I think, go back to the days at HD and, um, and probably really my own personality and probably my partners at HD, Bernie, said, despite our success um, in building, when I left the company, it was the second largest retail company in the world, second only to Walmart, largest in our industry um, in 2003, uh, 2002 rather. Um, but I, I felt that, um, you know, we were always kind of running scared. We were always kind of, uh, you know, where's the competition? Are they gaining on us? Where are they? Do we have them in our sights? And so I think, you know, we got up every morning with, uh, with a sense of urgency. Um, I had a, uh, a poster upstairs outside my office, which was given to me many years ago. It talks about a lion and a gazelle, and whether they both get up in the morning, they both have to get up and run, gazelle to stay alive, and the lion to feed himself. So it doesn't make a difference whether you're a lion or gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. Um, so One employee yeah. um, of yours said, you motivate people to attain goals they never thought was possible. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, I think, you know, I ask, uh, I ask people to aspire um, to be part of something that's, um, that's bigger than themselves um, from a work standpoint, um, because I think that's one of the great, um, great qualities that brings people together and makes them think of the business of whatever job they're doing, that it's not about work, it's about a higher mission than just work. And people really, when they go to work and they give you beyond their eight, 10, 12 hours a day, whatever it may be, they're giving you their energy and their passion and enthusiasm. You want them to go home and be proud of who they are and what they are and the organization they're working with um, and what it stands for. Uh, so I think that brings out the very best in all of us, um, no matter what job it may be in our organization. April 14th, 1978, uh, take me to that day and what happens? Well, Bernie and I were... Uh, Bernie being the other yeah, founder yeah, of yeah, Home Depot. Bernie Marcus and I were at, at, at Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers. I was the executive vice president and CEO, I think my title was, and he was the president and CEO. And we were part of a company called Dalen, which was a large conglomerate. 21% of the company was owned by the public, uh, which meant that we had all the protections of a public company. Um, but the other 79% was owned by this parent company that was not in good shape. All of its operating divisions were doing poorly, et cetera. So we were over in the uh, city of industry, 
which is like, you know, over, over in East LA. Uh, and we had to drive to West LA, uh, down towards the Marine area, which could take about two and a half days to get there without traffic. And so we got there, I think it was a budget meeting, it was a five-year planning meeting, et cetera. As soon as we got there, they separated us. Um, I went to one office, he went to another office, and obviously we, we had a presentation to make to the, uh, the then senior management, which we knew we weren't gonna be making, that something else was gonna be happening, not really knowing what. And it turned out that we were both fired at the same time, and there was some trumped up reason, I don't remember what it was, but it was something where the SEC had gotten involved, and they came back, did a complete investigation, and whatever it was, they never found anything, there never was anything. Um, but they used that as an excuse to uh, to let us both go. And you guys weren't young guys then well, either. I, yeah, yeah, I was young. I was only th th 37 at the okay. time. And Bernie, um, today that's young. 74, 37 is young. <laughs> so, um, and Bernie was 14 years my senior, as is today. So Bernie would have been 51 at the time. Uh, I mean, the company, our company, Handy Dan, was the most successful home improvement set of company in the country at that time. Um, so... Uh, it was, I mean, it was like, you know, you're kidding me. So I remember calling my wife and telling her, uh, Diana. She thought it was a joke, right? Yeah, so it was a joke. She, she, started, um, she started laughing. I said, well, actually, honey, this isn't really funny. I really was fired. I said, really? I said, well, I mean, honestly, yeah, well, you have to tell me about this. Well, I'm, look, I'll tell you when I get home. And so I remember it was raining. It took me forever to get home. And by the time I'd gotten to the house, she was already called. The house was called by the L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal. So she said, I guess this is serious. I said, well, it's serious and that I was fired. So that's true. Um, so we, um, we were trying to think about our options, what to do. And, and uh, both Bernie and I had opportunities to go into stay in the corporate world and do a variety of different things. And, and, um, you know, we were fortunate we had a group of investors led by Ken Langone, who owned a large piece of the 21% of the public part of the company. And so Ken said to us, look, if we can get investors together, if you want to do something unique and different in the industry, um, we'd be happy to invest with you. What caused you and Bernie to have the idea for a well, home and well, proof think, insurer of that magnitude? You know, at that, that time, Bernie had been, and I later went with him down to see Saul Price uh, at the Price Club, which was had just started uh, in, uh, in San Diego. And that unique format, that large warehouse, no frills, uh, very low pricing kind of uh, format. And we said to ourselves, if in our industry, if we ever had to compete with anybody that was, you know, large, no frills, down market, big store, lots of inventory, low pricing, and service, and service is, that we couldn't have done it. So the option we had in 78, and going into 79 when the stores were opened up, was to kind of fine tune the box a little bit, and always take 40,000 square foot, it was all 40s, 40,000 square foot, 40% 40 gross margin, 40 employees on the floor, et cetera. So it was a very profitable formula. So we, we could, fine-tune that or try to leapfrog the industry by a number of years and you know with the encouragement really of all of us and Pat and whatever we said let's let's just try to leapfrog everybody in this industry and get way ahead of the curve here so from there we went out and started to talk about this thing called we had no name for it then we had, uh, whatever the name was it bad Bernie's Build-alls. Yeah, that was one of them, Bad Bernie's Build-all. And Instead we, ended, we ended up calling it, it was, it was kind of an innocuous name, it was MB Associates, Marcus Blank Associates, because we didn't have a name. 
we only ended up with the name of the Home Depot about two months before we opened up. Uh, one of our investors was who lived in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was taking a train from Bethlehem to um, uh, New York, and uh, they stopped at a uh, at a train depot, and uh, and they had a discussion, husband and wife, about well, it's a depot is a big place, and people bring things there, and it's kind of a warehousey kind of thing, and. You know, anything related to the home. How about the Home Depot? And of course, at that point, we were desperate for a national name that we could get a service mark on. And um, so we said, yeah, we'll take that one. Tell about Ross Perot's $2 million investment that almost happened and what that would be worth today. We bought in our five-year plan um, and met Ross in his office and you know, had white shirt, tie, very tightly groomed hair. Um, and a beautiful office, a lot of, you know, uh, artwork in it, a lot of Western artwork in it and what have you, remember all that. And he goes over and he pushes some door that's like over there on the side, like a magical wall. It opens up and goes into a conference room. So we sit there, myself and Bernie and Ken Langone and this retired chairman of Merrill, I don't remember his name, and Ross. And uh, so I go ahead and make the presentation. And I don't know, it would take an hour or so. Go through the whole thing, and at the end of it, you know, they ask some questions, and and I remember one of the questions, or one of the comments, where Ross at one point said to Bernie, Bernie, he asked Bernie, I don't know why, well, he asked us what, what 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 kind of cars we drive. I mean, I don't know why, but he well, one of the questions is, well, Bernie said, well, I drive a, a, an old leased Cadillac. Um, he said it's relatively old, it's leased. I said, and, Bernie, and remember Ross telling Bernie, well, we don't drive Cadillacs here. And I had a, a, a mustache then, as I do now, and he looked at me and said, you know, uh, we don't have any associates that have any facial hair at all. And um, I said, well, okay. I'm just going to, ooh, okay, all right. And then I had a blue shirt on like yours. Uh, maybe not quite that dark blue, but it was blue, blue mm -hmm. shirt. And I, I, he had a white shirt, and he said, all of our associates just wear white, white shirts here. So we went through the presentation, finished it, finished it out. He was very courteous. He was very nice. And, and uh, I remember going outside, we were walking down the stairs, Bernie and I looked at each other, and I said, do we really want to work? I mean, for somebody that, you know, doesn't like the car you drive or the facial hair or the color of the shirt or whatever it may be, it turned out that his chairman buddy from Merrill Lynch had told him that HD was never going to make it. That the company was, you know, the, there was too many investments. You know, in, in retail, you invest in space and inventory and people. That's the only three, three things you can invest in. We were over-spaced, over-inventoried, and over-people, and that therefore the company wasn't going to make it. So okay. Based on that recommendation, he said, I'm, I'm going to decline. I, he was always very gracious to us, Ross. When uh, I, I got the um, National Award from the City of Hope, uh, which is a L.A.-based hospital, uh, in Chicago, he came and he did the keynote address, and he was very complimentary about the company and about myself, et cetera. Um, when he actually ran for president, he talked at length during the campaign publicly on the stump um, about the values of our company, uh, values of Home Depot, and how important they were, not only on a company, but those kind of values, those attributes would uh, do well. Uh, throughout America and need to be built into um, a lot of his programs and thinking. So, I mean, he was never, I mean, but on the other hand, you know, when you get to that wealth, to some extent, you kind of do keep score based on, you know, on, on, on dollar bills. So he knew, I mean, the company's value today, I don't want to misspeak, it's probably 
$180 billion, something like that. And, and uh, his $2 million you know, would have been would've for been 70? Half, oh, half. Yeah, about okay. half of it, yeah. So, um, and you, you said was, it's worth was, how much today? Yeah. It's, it's probably about 180 billion. Probably about 180 billion today. So it so would have been would, 90 he would, billion. Yeah, yeah, he would. He would not very happy about that. <laughs> I want to take you to a time that I believe was pretty painful for you. Um, you're head of the company. Uh-huh. 2001 comes around, and you pretty much get kicked out. As I understand it, I was talking to a couple people close to you, and one said um, it was horrible and devastating to you. What about how it went down bothered you? Well, I think the way it went down really bothered me. I had a meeting in southern Florida, and um, I forgot what it was for, some board meeting, and um, we met in the hangar, and uh, the board said, we've decided to move forward now, and uh, we'd like you to step down now, and want to bring in Bob Nardelli, and, and you know, I, I think the whole thing felt, um, you know, just awful to me. Uh, I thought that he was the wrong choice by a lot. Uh, I didn't understand the process. Um, I mean, I was the one who initiated the search because I felt timing after 23 years was really the right the right thing for the company to do. Um, but and it turned out, you know, six years later, I would say, without being personal about it, let's just say his management style had a huge negative effect on the company, on the associates, on our customers, our brand, our share price. On virtually every, every everything uh, could not have gone worse under his leadership. And uh, thank heavens, uh, it was interesting, somebody that he had hired, Frank Blake, um, came into the company and he had a, forgot what his title was, but he was involved in some sort of, he was involved in some of the strategy and the pro side of the business, et cetera. But when they got rid of Nardelli, they promoted Frank Blake. Well, the first thing they did, Frank called me in the morning when he got a CEO and he said, I'd like to get together, can we have breakfast? And, you know, we met and I said, look, I'm, I love the company, it's my seventh child, anything I can do to help, I'm always here for you guys, anything. And Frank and I developed a really close relationship over the years, I think he did a wonderful job as a CEO. Uh, basically, the management team that was in place then, the one that's in place now with Craig Manier, who's the new chairman CEO, I also hired. Um, most of the people running the company today are people that I hired and worked with, you know, 15, 18, 20 years ago. Um, and the company is in incredible hands. I tease Bernie sometimes to say, you know, I don't, I don't know that we could be running the company as successfully today as they're running it because the company today is is far more complicated um, than when we were running it. We were running it; it was a easier company because essentially it was a it was a it was a rollout game. I mean, we were opening up stores to the point we got to almost 200 stores a year, store every day and a half. I mean, we were, you know, that we became really, really, really proficient at that. But the com- complexity of supply chain, the complexity of, of the internet, the complexity of, of IT and all the technology behind that, uh, the complexity of some of those things were, were probably not where they needed to be and where I think uh, Frank has done a fabulous job and Craig has done a fabulous job in taking the company to the next levels. So I'm very, very proud of what the company has done and what it's become today. I'm major, major, major shareholder and it still has allowed me to do a lot of the things I've been able to do with the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United and our PGA business and our guest ranch and our foundation. Um, describe the emotion of coming back for the first time 
in 2008 to speak to store managers after I believe you hadn't been back yeah, since. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's been you know every time I've gone back now, I go to the annual meeting every year and out of respect for the leadership team and and to try to show them my support every thing I can do. Um, but what was that personally. first time back? Well, like? it was it was uh, it was very emotional for me. I mean, it was uh, I hadn't had a chance to speak to the entire management team together as a group. Um, what did you say? You know, I'm sure I told them how much I love them and how much I love the values of our company. And I love the fact that our culture was alive and well. And the culture was really everything that separated uh, us uh, from really all the, all the competition we had. It wasn't really about, you know, the good financial results in every way. Sales up 48% a year when I was there for the 23 years. Earnings 49% a year. Stock value was up 28% a year each year, Kager, for 23 years. I mean, that was all not because we pegged those numbers, but we pegged those values and said we will run the company based on these values. And as long as we did that, we produced the kind of successes that we uh, that we had. And that's basically what we do today with all of our businesses. I want to take you back to uh, sure. when you were grow growing up. You grew up in a modest one-bedroom uh, apartment. Very, I, I, very I, was modest, yeah. I was surprised to yeah. learn it wasn't until you were 31 years old that you actually lived in a single-family home. Um, right. But w describe what the um, living situation was like when you were growing up as a kid. Well, it was, uh, it was a very modest one-bedroom apartment with a single bathroom. My mother and father, who passed away when I was 15, but when he was alive, they slept on, I call it a divan, I think you think it's a sofa you'd pull out in the foyer. And my brother and I shared the one, the one bedroom, we all had the, shared the bathroom. And uh, it was a small kitchen, and um, I don't know how many square feet it was, but it wasn't, it wasn't very big. What were your aspirations when you were growing up? From a business standpoint? Sure. Well, you know, after my father died, I don't know, he was, again, I was only 15, he was 44, my dad. But um, when I was 15, I don't know that I had any aspirations, particularly career-wise, but after he died, I think that really changed the shape of my life. My brother decided to go into the pharmaceutical end of the business. He went to the University of Michigan, got a degree in pharmacy, and he was gonna focus on that end of the business. And then I would go ahead and get a business degree and focus on the business end of the business, and the two of us would take over the business. And then my mother, who was a very young woman when my dad died. She was 37 years old. I didn't realize how young she was at the time, but she was a young woman then. Um, she went in and ran the business, which was a huge effort for her because she, didn't, she had the intellect, but not the skills. What most impressed you about what she did when taking over the family business after your father's passing? Well, she had no business background. She never spent any time, you know, inside the business working, understanding it. So when my dad passed away, you know, fairly suddenly, she was left to inherit it. And, and um, she could have sold at the time where she felt that she could go in and try to manage it and try to hold it for the boys. That would be for my brother and I, brother Michael and I. And um, the fact that at her age she compromised, gave back a lot of her life and worked very long hours uh, an industry she really didn't understand and created uh, a name for herself, a name for our company, uh, and was able to eventually sell it to a large pub public company and really secure the f family's uh, uh, financial well-being 
for a long time is, you know, is a great tribute to her. And turned it into a multi-million dollar business. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yes. I wanted to talk to you about uh, sports franchises. Right. Tell about the conversation you had with Patriots owner Robert Kraft before buying the Falcons. Okay. It was December of 2001. So we had announced our uh, deal. It wasn't closed. It was closed the following February. And I went to New York to get my new owner orientation, and Paul Tagli was the commissioner then. And Paul said, eh, there's a guy here just recently, several years before that, Robert had bought the New England Patriots. He said, but, you know, he's got an interesting business background, much like yourself, and, you know, why don't you have breakfast with him? So I did, and I said, Robert, yeah, I'd never met him before. And so he said, yeah, you're going to hear from a lot of people that all the, all the things that it takes to run an NFL franchise are different than what it took you to be successful in business. He said, what I want to tell you is that they're exactly the same. So I said, well, you just do everything that you were doing successfully to run HD, apply those, you know, to the Atlanta Falcons, you're going to be very successful. So, you know, number one, that's the only operating philosophy that I knew, and that's all I was going to do anyway. But it was nice to hear it from somebody who had a really good business background. The one thing he said to me that's different was the media. So I said to him, I remember looking at him and smiling. I said, well, you know, Robert, I'm in media. I said, you know, we were went public in, you know, 81, and the company started in 79, and, you know, the stock's grown 48% a year, you know, over 23 years. I said, I mean, how, you know, we have, we have got New York Stock Exchange and, you know, Standard Poor's. I mean, all the attributes you'd expect of the company in terms of public uh, exposure had been there. So he looked at me and he smiled. I said, you don't get it, but you will. And he was right. You know, I didn't, you know, at that time, you know, even today, um, if you talk to Craig Manier, who's the uh, wonderful CEO at HD Today, I mean, Craig would say, well, you know, I mean, once a quarter, I'm, I'm, you know, I hunker down, focus on the shareholders, do our report. But pretty much quarter to quarter, he can, he can run his business without having to get calls from reporters every day. In our business, in the NFL, and will be this way in soccer, certainly. And it's not this way in our other businesses, but certainly in the NFL it is. And there are dozens of reporters following you there every single day. And, and my attitude, and I've told our, our folks who are running our businesses, either you give them content or they will make it up. Because, you know, they have a job to do. I said, they have to write something. They have to report something. So we have a lot of stories. Let's make sure we continue to give them the content so they have something to work from that actually is is factual so um, we have a very transparent relationship with the media I think it's one of the one of the best in the NFL and hopefully it'll be case in MLS as well the biggest challenge in your mind upon taking over the team was what uh, I remember a story that Robert told me also Paul, Paul Tagliabue told me two things at the closing he said you realize and I didn't realize this he said your team uh, and this is at the closing. He said, your team has never had back-to-back -back winning seasons. So I said, well, that, that can't be correct. I mean, it's been, you know, franchise has been in existence for 36 years, go back and check. And Paul's the smartest guy in the room. He was always the smartest guy. And I don't mean a smart Alec. He just really was the smartest person in the room. So I said, ooh, he may be right. So I found out he was right. We never had back-to-back -back winning seasons. So that, from a football standpoint, that was really a challenge. From a business standpoint, there were 30 teams, 31 teams operating the NFL, and the Houston Tex Texans had gotten their franchise, uh, had rewarded their franchise, but were not operating then. So there were 31 other teams operating at that time. And if you did kind of a forced listing of teams, 
based on revenue, local revenue, uh, the Atlanta Falcons would have ranked something like 47 or 48 out of 31. So we were like so far below the averages for the league, it was awful. Um, so I remember I had some issues then with the then head coach. I, I wasn't sure uh, he was going to be the right guy for us going forward, but I remember the commissioner saying, you know, I, it's your franchise, you do what you want. But given your business background, I would suggest you focus on what you can resolve earlier rather than later, take care of the business side of it. And the business side of it was the story that Robert Kraft told me, which was absolutely true, that when he played us that year before, that fall before, I had breakfast with him in December, that same fall, and he said the stadium was 60% full, so 40% of it was empty. And of the 60% that was there, half of those people were rooting for our team. So you had, you know, you had 30% of the building that was actually rooting for you. had no home field advantage, zero. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I knew how to get, I knew how to relate to customers, you know, through HD. And, and these were, you know, fans were customers. They're all kind of the same thing to me. It's people we were serving. And so um, I brought in one of our uh, senior management folks from HD that was ready to move on. And, and his name is Dick Sullivan, who now runs our PGA business for us. And, and Dick and I developed, you know, program. I spent some time with the players talking about, you know, what we had to do. And I, I knew you, you never want to see an NFL owner drawing up plays and picking players during the draft or free agency. That's ugly. That really is not, you know, is not a good situation. So I knew there needed to be a bright line. I needed to have the best football people that I could find and hire them and leave them alone, let them do their job, make sure they had salary cap resources and everything else. And we've always spent right up to the salary cap since I've been the owner. Um, the best personnel departments, the best fields, the best everything. So they could attract the best players. And then on the business side, given my background, basically find out, you know, city then, now it's close to seven million, then it was five, five and a half million. Why were people not coming to the games? Everybody in the building had a theory on why people weren't coming. So I said to them, respectfully, I don't really care too much about what you all telling me because you've you've been doing this for a while without a lot of success, and I, and I don't really care too much about why the fifty five thousand or fifty thousand people that were coming to a seventy one thousand uh, seat building why they were coming. What I what I do want to know about is there's another five million people, over five million people that are not coming. Why are they not coming? So we did a bunch of research and uh, extensively and focus interviews, community interviews, uh, stuff in the marketplace. And basically it came down to like five or six things. It wasn't like 600 things, it was five or six things that a fan said, well, if you did these things differently, we would, we would come. Uh, they wanted, you know, they wanted better pricing. They wanted to have, uh, they wanted to feel more secure. They wanted parking. Uh, there were things, that, everything that we could control. It wasn't stuff that other people would control, we could control. And so we, we gave them those things and they, and they responded. They have to feel that the owner will, you know, turn over every leaf, every rock, do everything they can possibly do to provide a winning team to the franchise. Las Vegas and the possibility of it getting a franchise. Well, I think, I think selecting the market, and I've said this to Mark Davis and I've said it to Roger. Um, Mark Davis being the, the owner Raiders of the, owner. Uh, yeah, the owner of the Raiders, is that I think um, 
and I would say particularly the Raiders are a really good example. They have, uh, despite up until the last couple of years with a new general manager, a new head coach, I mean, they lost a lot of games for a lot of years, and yet their fan base is still very, very strong. Um, the problem is the stadium is playing and is as old as the Colosseum in Rome, or maybe older. So it's, you know, it's not, it doesn't offer the fan amenities, doesn't offer the competitive things that are important for the fan base, you know, as well as for the players and for the staff and for the ownership as well. So my counsel to Mark is that, you know, I mean, I'm, I personally don't go, don't go to Vegas very much, but I understand the attractions there. We have to make sure that Las Vegas as a city can sustain an NFL franchise um, because I don't think you want to be dependent on people flying in and out who are there, you know, to gamble, go to shows or whatever, and they happen to be there on a Sunday. They're, root for their, they're not rooting for your team. They're rooting for their home team. So whoever is playing in Vegas this time, it's not going to be the Raiders they're rooting for unless they're living there. And the city is not a big city. It's less than a couple of million people. So it's, uh, I think it's a lot less than that, actually. So, so I think there's work to be done. Uh, and obviously, the issue of, of gambling is, is critical to the NFL. Uh, the NFL has a very bright line in terms of um, team ownership and, and gambling interests. Um, so I think that that, in any way, shape, or form, whether it be the stadium or the team itself, so that has to be clearly sorted out and, um, and kept separate. What's your guess on if it happens? You know, it would just be a guess. And um, I, I think the league will be very thoughtful about its work. Um, I think that the Davis family and other LPs, limited partners that he have, will be very thoughtful about their work. Um, I don't really know. Um, I think it's really too early to tell. I would well, say it's not this. a guess. I, 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 you're right. It's not a guess. I, I would say this: that the league is the league, and I am, for that matter. The league is biased um, towards keeping franchises in the cities that they're in. So the league is going to put out whatever incentives it possibly can to encourage uh, the franchise to stay where they are. We think that's important for the fans. I mean, you want the fans to feel that sense of ownership. So the fans shouldn't feel as in the case of St. Louis, when uh, I think Stan Kroenke went to all efforts and all pains to try to keep the franchise in St. Louis, the league helped them do that and did everything they possibly could. Only when it became an overwhelmingly clear choice to move to L.A. did, did we finally approve it. But we did everything we could do that made sense, uh, close to making sense, to keep the team in St. Louis. So I think for Oakland and San Diego, you didn't ask about San Diego, but it's the same situation. We would like them to stay where they are. That would be our preference, but they have to have a competitive stadium situation. Roger Goodell's salary has gone down every year since 2012. You and are one of three owners responsible for determining that. Um, what are your thoughts on the job he's doing as commissioner? I think Roger's done a great job. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of his. Uh, I was not on the search committee. Uh, when uh, when Roger got the job in 2007, I think it was. I could be off by a year or two there. Um, but I would say, looking back in retrospect, I would certainly give, I would check almost every every box. I think he is operating in a, um, in a, in a different environment, I think, than uh, Commissioner Tagliabue did. I think, in what way? I think the concern with the player health and safety is higher than it's ever been before. I think... Um, 
fan ratings are, are a bit of an issue now, but I think the, you know, the, the, um, the issues of uh, domestic violence and how we respond to that as a league and how we interface with, um, with law enforcement in that regard and do it and not, you know, and, and not get ahead of ourselves, but protect, you know, people that are being violated. Um, but also be balanced to the players so that they have their day in court and they're treated fairly as well. There's been a lot of, a lot of uh, issues, real issues, relative to you know, domestic violence, player health and safety over the last number of years. And I think that Roger, in my opinion, the league and owners have responded uh, to that in a, in a very aggressive, very forceful way, both in terms of looking at playing regulations, equipment, um, technology, uh, in every possible way that we can, the way games being officiated, um, to protect players. And on the domestic violence front, uh, I'm on the conduct committee, and uh, the number of arrests, off-season arrests, which is when most of these issues take place, last year, uh, two years ago rather, was down by 40% from the previous year. This last off-season was down by 30% from that previous year, which was down 40%. So we're definitely seeing a sustained drop in, uh, in um, off-season activities that are uh, inappropriate. And I think a lot of that players are getting more educated, more aware, they're more sensitive. We're doing a better job in terms of playing education. We do it with rookies, we do it with veterans. We do it at the league level, we do it at the club level. We do it in a variety of ways. Uh, so I think those issues have been, have been difficult for the commissioner. The game is certainly growing beautifully. Um, he's very focused on the players and on their health and safety and focused on fans, I would say, equally focused on fans and making sure that we are responsive to fans. And I think Roger has led the charge to try to keep these franchises uh, in place if there's any way that they possibly can be. And so it's, um, I'd certainly give them very high grades. We wrapped up our conversation with Blank as we drove to Mercedes-Benz Stadium in downtown Atlanta. He spoke candidly about an especially difficult period for the Falcons organization. I read somewhere that 2007 was the most difficult year of your professional career, and I thought that was interesting because it was a tough yeah. ending to Home Depot. Um, what was your reaction when you're on a flight coming back from an African safari right, and right. you get the news? Right, I got the news. I was well, I was shocked. I mean, I obviously didn't. Uh, by the time we came back from that safari, we had um, we had some information before we left that you know that that was you know something going on with dog fighting. We didn't know what it was, and Michael at that point said he wasn't involved, and it was his friends, and it was his relatives, and you know, he, and it was, you know, he had done that with me, he had done that with the commissioner. Um, so that was the first time, I think, that we actually came, you know, face to face with the reality that, you know, he had done some, he personally had done some really bad things. Uh, and when news first came out, very and you, disappointed. when news first came yeah. out and you addressed it with him, right. um, did you completely trust that that was indeed? Yeah, I did. I, okay. I accepted you with Michael. I met with him early on, um, and he told me um, uh, that this was, you know, uh, friends uh, that were using an area in his home. He wasn't aware of it. He wasn't involved in it. It's not, you know, something he would ever approve of. He loved dogs, et cetera. And 
you know, um, I accepted that. Um, but obviously, then we had to do some digging, and the NFL had to do some digging, and collectively, um, facts started to come forward that indicated that was that was not the case. What do you remember from the first conversation you had with him after news came out of what actually happened? Uh, I, I tell you, I remember the last conversation before I went to prison, as opposed to the first one. Uh, the last one, maybe he called me, and I was in my bathroom getting ready, and he said, "You know, I, I want to tell you again, I'm really, you know, I'm really sorry for what you know, I've done, you know, to you personally, to Atlanta, to fans, to my family, and and obviously all these pets, um, dogs and pets, etc." Um, so I asked him. I said, "Well, how did you know? I mean." Didn't you ever think you'd be caught? I mean, how did you think you were going to get away with this? And he said, well, and this is, you know, an important life lesson for people who are in positions of entitlement uh, or feel they're entitled in a variety of ways. Michael said, um, you know, my entire life, um, once I became the athlete I was, somebody was always there to take care of, quote, any issues that I had. Somebody always was there to kind of fend for me and you know, cover up this for me and make it right or whatever it may be. And I thought this was going to be another case where that would happen again. Uh, that even to the very end, that some attorney, I'm not, you know, being you know, negative to attorneys, but you know, some attorney or whatever would, would, would handle this for me. And obviously I had to take responsibility for what I did, uh, and I do, and uh, I'm going to pay a big price, and he did. What do you remember from that stuck out most from the letters you got from him in jail? Well, I, 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 the impression I always had with Michael from the time that, from that conversation on is that he really did, uh, he did really want to repent. It was sincere. Uh, he felt um, he had made obviously very bad decisions, um, and part of it, you know, he, you know, it was initially it was just kind of his, you know, his rationalization. Or I remember another player. Um, happened to Depps be in the Hall of Fame in the NFL, Curtis Martin, who grew up in a tough area in Pittsburgh. Curtis came to Atlanta, had dinner with me one night. He said, one of the things you need to understand um, about, and he wasn't defending Michael, but just understand the environment. He said, well, he grew up. He said, I mean, they had bigger fish to fry than dog fighting. There were people who were attacking each other. There was domestic violence every night. There was, there was shootings going on. There were, I mean, all kinds of really bad things. He said, so... You know, Michael grew up in an environment where dogfighting, as bad as it is, wasn't considered to be the worst thing that law enforcement had to deal with. Um, and I think part of that, you know, um, set up Michael for failure, if you will, in that in that regard. Um, so it was a very difficult time for our franchise and difficult time for our fans. Um, you know, I felt badly for our family because of the relationship we had with Michael as an individual. Um, and um, I was happy when he finally got released and happy that he had another opportunity um, in the National Football League and he went to a good organization, the Philadelphia Eagles, and with a, one of the top coaches, a caring, um, caring coach, Andy Reid, who has dealt with own personal tragedies in his life and yet he was able to uh, reach out to Michael and, and, you know, and he had some good playing years there. How surprised were you? by what happened with Coach Petrino? I'll tell you a funny story. The same time we, on the same trip, we 
uh, went up to Boston College to, uh, and I went along as a kind of a support person for the coaching staff and the personnel evaluators to see see Matt Ryan. We stopped in Louisville and saw a Brian Brom. Brian Brom's probably name doesn't mean much to you, but the year before, when Brian was a junior, most people thought he would be the number one pick mm -hmm. uh, as, as a senior. And uh, he did his workout for us as well, and, and the staff preferred uh, Matt. But uh, we had been through you know, uh, Bobby the year before, and he was walking out of the room with me, and he just said, I'm just curious, he said, what made you guys think that, that Coach Petrino was going to be successful in the NFL? I said, well, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, his college record was incredible. And he said, but you know, college, the athletes are just different. He said than they are in the NFL. He said, we're much younger and we're, you know, much more pliable in terms of following certain tight disciplines and et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way Coach Petrino was used to coaching. And I remember after we had hired Coach Petrino, I got called some, you know, two or th three of our more experienced players within 60 days, which they've never ever done. I mean, it's something that's never happened. There were a player who called me at home about something relative to football ever, and basically said to me, um, "Hello, uh, do you uh, do you know what you've done?" <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you know? You know, I mean, Coach Petrino was asking us to do this, 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 this. We can't do this, 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 and this. Um, so. And what were the issues? There were things relative to player discipline and, and and structure and you know in many cases these were players that were you know into their late 20s had families early 30s I mean they just were more mature um, in their life than they were you know seven eight nine years ago and um, so what worked for a college athlete um, wasn't always going to work exactly the same way for a professional athlete and for whatever reason coach Petrino didn't didn't recognize that. So, you know, halfway through the season, um, obviously he didn't have the quarterback he hoped to have, Michael Vick, and we hoped to have and to work with. He worked with as talented as could, and he coached hard and did, did everything he knew how to do. But I could see, and Bobby could see, that this wasn't going to be a good match for him. Not our franchise, but, you know, in the NFL. Um, and so we kind of talked about, look, let's get through this year together, make it the best year we can, do the best with what we can, and at the end of the year we'll, we'll you know, we'll part ways and kind of move on. And, and so, so had he not left when he did, it, it, you guys would have ended up parting ways at well, the end of the season, yeah, pretty much regardless. During the season, earlier than the way he did, that that was going to be the case. The part that was was difficult for me uh, and that so that part of it I kind of accept but sometimes that happens in life and business and in relationships sometimes it happens you you, you um, end up you know choosing this company over this company you're there after 60 90 120 days said so, oh, bad pick you know good industry bad culture doesn't fit me I need to move on so it happens don't want it to happen a lot but it does happen so with coach Petrino that seemed to be the case um, so we were playing on Monday Night Football, and uh, ESPN was covering it, obviously, and, and, um, and Coach Petrino had stopped on my office on the way down, and I knew that night I was going to be on ESPN. I had an interview to do, and, and I was going to be asked pre and probably post-game, you know, um, what's going to be the future of Coach Petrino, et cetera. I said, you know, so I said to Bobby, you know, what, I mean, tell me what you want me to tell him. I mean, tell me what, you, what you're feeling. He said, I remember him standing up and reaching out and shaking my hand saying, you tell him you have a coach. 
I said, okay, I'll tell him that I have a coach. So played Monday night. I can't remember who was against. We lost the game. I, you know, and and then I um, later that evening, I was sitting up in bed. I was watching Coach Petrino uh, up at the University of Arkansas doing the pig suey thing. This is all within a six, eight hours span. <laughs> so I was sitting in bed, actually. I was watching that. And uh, after throwing up all over the place, uh, not literally, but, you know, um, I mean, so I, it turned out that, you know, uh, that he had, he, had, he had decided that was what he was going to do before. And uh, he, um, he went to do it. But that he decided that was what he was going to do before he told you to tell them right. you had a coach. What, what was your reaction when you're sitting in bed and you see that? I threw up emotionally. <laughs> um, I, I felt really badly because I, I thought I had a good relationship with Coach Petrino. He was obviously a fabulous college coach, coach before. And again now, he's done you know some incredible work again this year at Louisville. Um, but I... You know, I felt bad because I knew that uh, that if he had said to me, "Look, at, you know, we, we, you and I have had these conversations. It's probably not a great match for me. Maybe not a great match for you. So, let's figure out how we want to frame this up tonight. If you are asked the question in a way that that we can maintain the integrity, your personal integrity, my integrity, integrity of the organization and the, and the NFL, and um, and that's, you know, that's what I would have hoped would have happened. And we would have come out with some words that would have made that clear and, and but that's not what happened so and you've interestingly seen each other since and never not, discussed not, it no I really haven't seen Bobby I think I saw him one one time since um, um, he called me once by accident I mean he was in the gym I don't know he got you know I, I don't I mean he called me and I said right. oh, Bobby how you doing and I said well you know I, didn't, I don't think he realized he called me and we visited for a minute but you know I I certainly wish him well. Wish his wife was a, a lovely woman. He had a couple of boys, as I remember, that were really nice young men, and and he's done a great job back in college. He's gone through some personal drama in his life since he left us. Seems to have gotten through that with his family intact, which is a which is a wonderful thing, and great for their family, and great for him. Really a pleasure. Thank you very much, Graham. Thanks for listening to my interview with Arthur Blank. To watch video of Arthur giving me a tour of the Falcons' new stadium while still under construction, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.